Welcome to the Open Pantry Podcast for yet another episode. Great to have you on board. I'm your host, as always, Sean DeVries from Open Pantry Consulting. Today's a really special event. We get to chat with my good long-term friend, Chris, who I work with in a previous role really closely. He's done so much work in HR, training and learning and development of great individuals within many different brands. And today is really enjoyable for me because he gives such great detail into how to navigate that through properly if you're a business owner or if you're coming up through the ranks and, and just making sure you've got the right training and learning in your role, which is so critical to long-term success in this in this great industry. So let's get into today's show. Would really love your feedback. Uh, welcome to the Open Pantry Podcast for another episode. Amazing to have you on board. Amazing to be here in Abacus again. Chris Bernasque, it's amazing to have you on board. Thank you, mate. As a business consultant specializing in HR. It's a mouthful, isn't it? It's a big mouthful. <laughs> um, the reason why I want to get you on today is obviously our role together in Grilled for such a long time. Um, five or six years that we've yeah, been pretty closely together yeah. um, in different ways. Um, HR's a massive nightmare in, in hospitality venues at the moment, in business yeah. more generally. Yeah. So I wanted to get you on to really understand that for who listens, to give some more feedback and, and how people can do it better and do it well and do yeah. it legally yeah. uh, is the most important thing. But just to give a bit of an origin story, how did you sort of start your career to broaden out uh, into training into HR? Yeah, so I worked hospital for oh, a good six, seven years when I was studying. I think yep. most people do when yep. they're younger. And yep. So I did a lot of pubs. I did a lot of gaming. So yeah, I did right. a lot of, um, we call it the graveyard shifts. I yeah. do the 10 o'clock till 6 o'clock in the morning. And wow. Yeah, so I did that to fund you know, my lifestyle when I was growing up and pay for uni and stuff like that. And then I decided to do um, a degree in business. And then it was only in the last minute that I said I wanted to major in HR. And I don't really know what drove me to that but I think I like the, the people interaction component and so it was nothing like that when I went through the, the course but was that just an opportunity that came up? yeah it was I was just actually looking through the different courses and you know, I wasn't really appealed to the economic side of things entirely I love the commercial stuff but it was a lot around people I mean being in hospital that's that's the, the job is the interaction right so yeah, so I did that, and then I was really fortunate to get my first gig at, oh, I'll still regard him as probably the leading um, over HR sort of uh, business, and that was Bunnings. So that was my um, my first introduction to it. And, and look, we I had an opportunity to work with some amazing people there, and um, one of the things that we did was we worked with Monopoly and did a customer service coordinator. You know, it was, yeah, it was so innovative and creative that yeah. it really allowed people to bring their talents, to engage with people. The vision and values, um, the surveys and benchmarks they used to do regularly every month were, were amazing. So I got a really good introduction into how things should be done. Yeah. And my world was, yeah. my experiences were that as a standard. So I was, I was quite fortunate to come into the industry in a, in a really positive way. Yeah, right. Um, and then I moved into entertainment and I worked for a global business and um, loved that as well. And you know, I worked across many divisions in that, in that business. And you know, what I found is that HR is a transferable skill and experience, but the way that people work through HR is very different. 
And what I mean by that is that you've got your traditional HR, you've got yes. your, you know, your legal stuff as you yes. talk about, but, yes. but very transactional. So very much, we've got to do this and we've got to do this. Nothing is really integrated into a you know, robust plan or strategy. It seems to be either a standalone part of the business or it seems to be um, you know, just trying to follow what the business is trying to do. Yes. Then you've got that next that next kind of level up, which is more integrated, but yep. probably still not at that partnership level. And then you've got businesses that are people first, that genuinely put people first. And what I mean by that is decisions that they make are very much uh, centric to what the people impact is going to be. Sure. You can tell hospo businesses that have been established or still running at the moment and they're quite large that really have thought about the people aspects as a fair the thought rather than the leading thought. Yeah, do you, do you find that's a hard one to sort of sniff out because all hospitality, most hospitality businesses are smart and strategic to say they're people. Um, everyone will say that. Yeah. Everybody will claim it and yeah. a lot of people would genuinely believe they are. But, if, they're, if they're in it, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, I, I think there are a couple of things that you can look at really closely and that is just the energy of the, of the crew that are working. Yeah, um, absolutely. You know, who are they looking to? Who's the, what's the leadership capability like? What is what is their general disposition like? Are they are they aspirational? Are they engaged? Are they you know are they focused on the team? Or is it very much come in, do my job, go home? Yes. That's all you need to know. Yes. Once you once you can get a good understanding about that, then you can peel back the layers and try to work out well where is this gone right or where is it gone wrong. And a lot of the time, where it goes wrong is a lack of practices in place, a lack of discipline, a lack of priority. So. There might be recruitment, but it might be very basic recruitment, and it might not be trying to engage the best talent or look for the best opportunities. It might just be reactive. Someone's left. We've got to go find someone. Right. And we've got to go find them tomorrow. Right. Yeah. So literally, they'll, they'll look at what's in the market right That's now, right. and they won't think it's. Yeah, they won't plan ahead. They won't look strategically about the pipeline. About yep. what's the market offering at the moment? What's the trends? You know. Yep. And, that takes commitment and time and money to put someone in that role to do that. Yes. So, and there's not always a guaranteed return, which is why a lot of hospital businesses don't typically invest in those sort of areas. They will operationally because operational HR is where it is. But okay. it's about the training component. Yes. It's about terms, conditions, and policies. Yes. It's about making sure that they're compliant with you know whatever industrial instrument they're using. Um, but they're all fundamental things that are supposed to make the, the guest interaction more effective or more efficient. Yep. And what we tend to find is that you can over-process a business, so you can put too many things in place where yes. it just becomes too, too chaotic, or you can put not enough things where it gives people too much autonomy and too much um, freedom to go and make whatever decision they want to make. So, you know, you've got a leader who doesn't have a lot of reference points, doesn't yeah. have a lot of people who are coaching them or mentoring them, so they'll basically just go and interpret the world as they see it, right? And we've both seen how that can end up. Yes. Uh, you've got your really good operators, and they're the ones that you can trust, and they're the ones who you lean on quite a lot to do a lot of the work, but you've got those who become your problem. And the business will typically then have to spend all of their time focusing on the problem. Yes trying to either prevent something happening yes. or try to fix it. And yes. that's where all of this goes wrong. Yeah. So 
I don't ever think that someone starts off with a bad intent. I think people make a lot of poor judgment decisions. But people are looking to maximise their margins, maximise their business, rightly so, because it's such a competitive industry. Um, and they can take shortcuts and they can put their efforts into the wrong areas and they can clearly miss things that are really important, but they would prioritise something over over having a, a HR-focused model. So, And what I mean by that is you spend money on your product, you spend money on your property, you spend money on your people. Yes. Right? They're the three big things that you spend your money on, but the people stuff has the most flexibility to it. Yeah. So when you're paying for product for your cost of goods, there's only so much. That's usually the price. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You look at rental now, you look at lease agreements, they're, they're the toughest it ever been. Yes. There is no, you know, good old days where they've got five plus five leases and no. all these things are, they want the big players to maximise their return so the landlord's happy. And so the rent, the, the lease expense becoming quite significant. So then you look at your wages and your wages is, you know, sometimes at that kind of mid-twenties range, but more often than not they're playing in your thirties. Yes. So, you know, what's the first thing that you need to cut or what's the first thing that you're going to try and uh, maximise? It's, it's your people. Yeah. And so you can do that, but you've got to do it in a way where you've created a culture or a model where that's still effective. So if, you're, if you've got too many people working and there's dead people working, they're not actually providing you a lot of um, effectiveness, then you can actually go and cut things back. Yep. What I mean by that is, do you need to have seven people on running a certain shift if you've yep. only got a certain amount of um, service? But if you've got people who um, are being overworked and being exhausted, then you you're disenfranchising your talent. Yes. And so your cost, you might think you're saving, but in the medium term, you're going to have to spend a lot more to fix that. Yeah, most definitely. And you and I, I mean, I saw you getting exhausted, having to carry, you know, a lot of different things on, and yeah. a lot of people did, and that's yeah. the yeah. the nature of it. If you're half decent, then you're going to carry. You're going to get through. Carry, yeah. So many different things to unpack there, and so many questions off that one answer. It was a long answer, wasn't it? It's a great answer. I try and keep it to like it's a pretty three... Much a, it's pretty much a podcast now. A three points. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll just answer it in dot points for Please, you. Please, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's how we normally run here. Yeah. Um, what I want to talk about first, though, is the, name, the navigation between awards yeah. versus things like certified agreements or, you know, uh, enterprise bargaining agreements, those kind of things. Yeah. Do you think in a situation that we're, we're having now both state and federally. Yeah. That the days of a certified agreement, an enterprise bargain agreement, are simply gone and, and people really need to just pay hospitality awards. Um, unfortunately, that might be a perception, but I, I, I don't think so. Okay. So, look, the, the enterprise agreement instrument is actually designed to benefit both. Okay. Right? And the way that it's perceived is that the employer will ultimately rip Reap off. benefits, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that's not true. Okay. Now, when I left my last job, mm. the thing that I did for the last two and a half years was do, I think, 17 or 18 agreements right, yeah, across right. the country. And every time, the amount of, um, I guess, rigour that went around looking at what are the terms, they've got to be better off than the award. Yeah. 
Yep. They must pass the better off overall test. Yes. Now there's a third party member assist team that scrutinises the agreements before it even gets to the Commission. Right, okay. The problem that we have at the moment is that there is no clarity or direction from Fair Work. Right. So there is a lot of ambiguity between what is it that will pass that test? Yes. How do you actually communicate effectively to the you know the employees who are voting for it? And what does that then mean in terms of your planning, your commercial analysis of how the business will prosper? Now, I always look at it as saying it's an investment for the first two years, no doubt. You're likely going to be worse off than where you were to start with. Right? And that's because there's a natural increase in what you have to pay up front. You have to load these benefits up at the start of the agreement. But then as time goes by, you can start to really be far more competitive. And hold those same terms, but make sure that they are still attractive enough to have people come into work in that business. Now, the thing that people are missing is that they're not seeing past the first 12 months. They're not planning for the long-term benefit. They're not looking at well, how do we have these terms, which are which are set in stone? How can we then work with that? Which is a great issue to have. Yeah, it's not vulnerable or volatile. It's not going to change with the wind bikes that we're seeing at the moment. So you can plan with a lot of confidence about, I'm in control now of what I'm spending on wages. Now I can plan on what I need to do from a sales perspective or revenue. And it, it leads into so many other decisions to make. And, and I think having that certainty is so critical where the business, most hospital businesses now don't look at that as being the overall benefit. The overall benefit isn't the money. Because whether or not you're paying low wages, you're probably spending a lot more money indirectly into your recruitment, yeah. the, the churning, all the training yes. effort. Yeah. So they're not really saving any money. Mm-hmm. What they're doing is they're, they're putting their business at risk by saying, we have to run a business that is at the mercy of external factors. Yeah. Of whatever happens from a federal election point of view, yes. which, you know, Either way this turns out, it is going to be a significant change in the system in the Fair Work Act, and it's going to cause a lot of disruption. So if we're not getting clarity right now, imagine what's going to be like in six months' time. Yes. There's no decisions that get made at the moment because everyone's still waiting. So if you're part of that group who are in that pool, you're, you can't make significant business decisions until you find out what's going on. Sure. If you're smart enough where you've done an agreement, you can make decisions. Yeah. You yeah, know yeah. what's going to happen. You know what's going to happen, yeah. You know you, the award's not going to yeah. change. Yeah. You know, even if the award does change, mm-hmm. you've set a, an instrument in place where you've got at least three years for certainty. Yes. And you can go and build your business around that certainty. Now, we've seen, you and I have seen a, a fantastic business model in place solely because of one really critical element, and that was the agreement. Yes. If that wasn't in place, I think we both agree, there is no way that growth could have taken place. Totally agree. That investment in people, the leadership development, the opportunities, all those things that came through was based on the agreement. So the business case is clear. People's understanding of how to do that well Mm. is not. And that's, I think for me, if I could give people any wisdom or advice, it is to back back yourself in and make sure that you understand your business really well and give the best opportunity for your people to believe in that, to prosper for it and work with you. Because if they're seeing this as a conflict or a point of tension, 
Yeah, and you can never engage with them fully. Yeah. You yeah. can never influence your business in the way that you'd like to because yeah. they're always going to be measured or guarded about what what change is happening. Yeah. Some of them will be over-cautious and they'll want to make sure that everything is done by the book. Yeah. And that's where this whole legal ramification comes from. And so then it becomes, you know, fellow congressmen discussions and disputes and complaints. And yeah. that, that's all distractions from your business that you don't need. Yeah, exactly. Most people aren't educated or experienced in dealing with those issues either. So you're paying someone externally or you're trying to rely on your internal resources to deal with a serious issue. Yes. And that's, again, outside of your core business. So I think there's probably more than a couple of points there for why I would go for yes. an agreement. But, yes. um, yeah, look, I, I couldn't see any benefit of being at the mercy of a, a system that's broken, really. That's really interesting, Tommy. Mm. Because doing agreements are, I'd imagine, largely, and I don't know, largely expensive to, to get someone in place, to get someone right up in the initial stages. Yeah. Do you think there's a level, if, if I've got a hospitality venue that's doing, let's say, $30,000 a week turnover? Yeah. Is that a level in which I should start to think, okay, like, let's have a deep dive into this. Maybe I should do an agreement. Like, what level of turnover do you that's think a great, is? That's a great question. I, I don't think it's so much about the level. I think it's about your plans of growth. Okay. So if you've got one venue, yeah. I don't think it's justified to have an agreement Yeah. because of, as you said, the upfront costs in building that. Mm-hmm. But if you're looking at expanding or growing to two, three, five, ten different... Yep venues, then you can be really clear that setting that up so you can scale your business and have it scaled in the same way that you built the first business is critical. And that certainty becomes the the business case. Once you've got your commercial analysis um, really set around what you think is going to be the best terms and and, um, conditions for your staff. Then all you're doing is you're paying someone a one-off cost pretty much to go and build your template of yep. your agreement. Yep. The money and the time comes in the um, the test, the better off overall test. Once okay. it gets submitted and lodged, and that's assuming... Legal yeah, that's, that's a fair work then scrutinising. What they used to do is they used to scrutinise the terms based on um, actuals. Right. Now they've moved to scenario-based. Okay. So hypotheticals. So say someone... Um, had an opportunity to work, you know, every Sunday because that's the only right. time that they can make yes. available. Yes. Regardless if you have policies that you can demonstrate saying that that is against our rostering practice, we yeah. don't ever allow someone to work every Sunday. To them, that's still not sufficient because the, the agreement doesn't exclude them from working every Sunday. So you have to write in terms to say they will not be able to work every Sunday. Right. They can only work a maximum of two Sundays per month. Right, I see. So these hypotheticals make it quite timely yes. and costly, but I think keeping it simple and working on that, are we scaling our business? Are we going yeah. to grow? Do we have the right model, the brand, the product to grow? That would be my first decision to make is how do we grow our infrastructure, our business model around our people yeah. to be able to do that. Yeah. Suppliers are suppliers in terms of can they carry that extra supply? I'm pretty sure they can. Right? Or if they can't, you can go find other options there. Yep. In terms of lease property, well, it's about spending, getting the right person to help you find those, those venues. But the people stuff, instead of always paying more and more and more, it's trying to look at, well, how can I set something out 
to give me flexibility so I can transfer employees to different venues. To yes, yeah. Plan for all of that first. Mm-hmm. Get that really clear and have someone come in and scrutinize the hell out of that. Yeah, for sure. Let me come in and tell you that it's not going to work. Mm. And then let you try and convince me that it is going to work. Yes. And once we sit there and we agree it's going to work, back yourself in. Yeah. But people aren't doing that. They're, they're looking at that as the second second thing to go and um, sort out. The, the first thing is, can they go and secure a property? Can they go and, you know, will they make enough money yes. selling all of this? Yes. Um, a lot of them have you know, cap, capital expenditure costs are quite high. They've got debt facilities with the banks that you know, they've got to pay back. So I understand the motivation and sometimes the challenges that happen. But if you're going to make a decision to grow, then the bank is going to want to know how, how do you have certainty to be able to repay your loan. Sure. And you can do that through having a lot of clarity about how you're going to position your, your people, or your, your costs for your wages, etc. So, How do you think, if I'm an existing business, and let's say I've been open for a year, and I've been under the Modern Award, yeah. and I've got some investment, Yeah. And they want to scale the brand. We want to scale the brand collectively to two or three sites. Yeah. And I want to go to a certified agreement. Yeah. How do you navigate that through your staff? Like, what's the best way to do it? We're talking about really selling concept to your team as a better option than it is. But do you just get ready for the churn rate of staff that are going to not trust it? No, I think. Well, the the principle about an agreement is being able to customise the terms and conditions to suit your business. Yes. So an award is is really a safeguard to protect the most vulnerable in the industry. It's it's really a one size fits all, but it has to play to the worst case scenario. Yeah. It has to play to those who would struggle in any other workplace if they weren't protected with, and rightly so. There's there's got to be protection protection around people's rights and people's um, livelihoods, really. So when it comes to a business that's been operating for 12 months, yeah. this is the best thing for them to go and learn what are their trends, what's worked from their rostering practices, yes. yeah. what training and development have we done or do we need to do. Mm-hmm. You can quickly sell the flexibility, the work-life balance, the in terms of costs around wages, in terms of yep. training, all of those things become really, really linked to the business itself, sure. not just these theoretical, conceptual sort of um, conditions. They are, all right, so let's go and unpack what we've achieved over the first 12 months. What's been our success? Let's keep that success formula in place yep. by locking that into an agreement. Yeah. Yep. You can then speak to and test this with your influential staff or the people that are you know, your heart of your business and, and go and explore it with them and say, hey, if we were to transition across to an agreement yep. and put these things in place, yep. put that to the team, how do you think they'll respond? How do you think that that will either help or hurt us? Yes. And, and these people only have the best interests of the business at hand because... They're, they're so fond and loyal of it because they've helped grow it. Yes. It is yeah. like their own baby. Yeah. yeah. You, so uh, you're, you're getting their buy-in, you're asking them for their opinion and, and for their input, and they're the ones who will influence the rest of the business. So without doing that, without trusting people to go and help bring that in play, then it may be seen as, oh, okay, now we're getting, we're making a bit of money, now they want to start you know, taking money off us, and the message becomes a lot different so yes. yeah yeah so that's, that's the way I would, I would look at it okay so it's really about trust at the end of the day so yeah it's about, yeah. It's about making about it, it is it's about making something work for your business yeah 
getting the, the best outcome that you can for both, having strong leadership in place. Yes. And if you're investing in your people, the return on that to your business should be well well understood. Yeah. If you're spending money on things that aren't giving you a return, then don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. trust is trust and communication are two things that yeah. you know critical. Communication and context. Yeah. Yeah. Um, We've both dealt with different businesses that have challenges in regards to uh, systems and processes around training, recruitment, and that kind of stuff. Or lack of. Lack of. Yeah. Correct. <laughs> yeah. Um, how, and, and massive churn rates in, in hospitality, which is which is indicative of the industry, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. Um, I largely think that's because of the fact there are very little systems and process once we once a person's hired someone, yeah. what do you what do you do with them now? Yeah. What how do you think onboarding and that first six to eight weeks is critical to someone's success in a business? Well you know what I think about that, but it's yes. a good question. Um, <laughs> so obviously when I first started working with you there was there was very little in place for a restaurant manager to have the necessary skills, knowledge, experience to run a restaurant. Yes. They were hired, they were saying, this is where you're going to be working, here's your team, good luck. Yes. And there's a bit of documentation around how to do that. But So what did, what did we do? We went and wrote and designed an eight-week program every day that balanced systems, processes, um, values, behaviour, exposure to different restaurants, to different states, to different people, so people could go and learn and master how they were going to run their restaurant. And the idea behind it was, after eight weeks for a restaurant manager, I can give you the keys. And you don't just know how to run that restaurant. You are so far advanced in terms of how you can plan for your restaurant, what needs, the discussions that happen. You are seen to be um, having the credentials because you can operate the stations, you can do the work, but you can also understand what impacts what. And giving someone that investment up front it meant that there was little turnover, there was high engagement, there was not a, a lack of um, productivity around that time lag. Yes. There was, overnight we saw a massive uplift in every metric that we could possibly go and want to measure. Now, the business has to take a huge risk in investment there. Yeah. This, this didn't come cheaply. This was... How long the project was that? Well, that was the first three months when I came in. Wow, okay. So what did I do? I worked under people like yourself yeah. and learnt the business from yes. the ground up yeah. asked people questions and wrote it and had some fortunate people internally who'd been around since it was opened yes. um, to help with the wisdom and write yeah. you know, the transactional operation stuff but in terms of building the program the dynamics of it looking at how do we build experience exposure how do we build confidence how do we get people to act and behave in the way that we need them to it was just about looking at the different formats, looking at how these guys and, and girls work. Yeah. What was our guest experience? What was our product? What was all of the things that the, the business was so successful about? How do we maximise them? And giving people that investment and time to go and navigate that, that was pretty special. So what yeah. we used to do was individual-led, group-led workshops. Yes. We had conferences. Yes. But the biggest part to that success of the program was I didn't deliver it. No. Who delivered it? The business managers and the restaurant managers that were seen, and they were, the best of the best. Yeah. They weren't anybody who we brought on in the first 12, after 12 months. They were established, highly influential 
they were the benchmark of the business. Everybody looked up to them and wanted to be them. So when you've got an elite group of people that you are asking to go and deliver this program, automatically the, the credibility and the um, integrity of that is, is at its best. And so you, you haven't just built a program and forced it down the throats of an operational business. You've asked them to sacrifice their time, which we did. We asked these managers to do a lot more outside of their, their restaurant yes. for no nothing in return. Really. Like we yeah. weren't paying them anymore. No. We were giving them opportunities to go and grow, to um, you know, look at their career in, um, in terms of different pathways. But in the end we were asking them to sacrifice a lot of their time from their own restaurant with their people to help somebody else. Yeah. Now you can't do that by saying you must do it. Yeah. And so what did we do? We brought you guys in for three days, five days, and we invested in you. Yes. We developed you. We gave you leadership development, coaching. Um, we allowed you to grow. We, we wanted you to grow first before we asked you to help grow others. Yes. And so that culture of learning and that culture of development became intrinsic in terms of everything that we did. And I don't see a lot of that anymore. I don't see... There's opportunity to do that everywhere. Yes. You've just got to back yourself to say, are we really committed to investing in development or are we just going to be seen to be developing people? But you can't do it from an outsider's point of view. You can't have me coming in HR going, hey, guess what? I'm going to train you today. Yes. You've got to learn that business. You've got to get the buy-in and the connection. And how many conversations did we have after work and before yeah. work? And, you know, I, I wanted to live and breathe what you guys did. Yeah. And I, I felt so close and so connected to the business and yourselves that it, it was like I was thinking on behalf of what you guys were asking for. Now yes. there were things that we didn't quite get right and we had yeah. to mature over and evolve yeah. but so you developed that right? yeah, the principle of what we did was, was second to none. It was actually yeah. one of the proud, class, yeah, sure. proudest things that I've put together for yeah. a while. Yeah. Um, that's still in place today. Yeah. In a different format but yeah. it still has the same core of what, what we did. So. I think as a lesson, that is the um, that is the big big learning for me is that it has to be a mutual um, program and investment, but it has to be backed by all parties of that business. Do you think it comes back to the word culture is thrown around so much? Yeah. And I'd rather use the word belonging. So you go, you've talked about how you come into the business, you've automatically got trust and respect for the people within it because yeah. you've listened to, you've learned. That's what I do when I go into a new business as well. I listen to the people who have not necessarily always been in the longest, but the ones who are doing the hardest shifts. Yeah, yeah. The ones who are really going to tell me the whole place. Putting in the effort, yeah, yeah. Correct. Yeah. Um, was that the way that that really developed into a really important program was that you were able to connect the major players and influences to, to make them feel like they had some belonging? Yeah. In order to execute on what you wanted, which was to change the churn rate in the brand. Yeah. Um, so I think for me when I started, I just wanted to learn the business. Yeah. I wanted to learn the things that I didn't already know. Now, as I said, HR is a transferable skill set, so you don't need to learn HR again. Once yes. you've learned it, you learn it. But you need to learn the business. Yeah. And learning the key influences, the a lot of the issues and the and the barriers to success and all those things that people want. Yeah. Use that as your starting point. Let, let people guide you in terms of what can make this place feel better, look better, be better. And w- when you have that, then you can start to look at what the solution is to 
resolve something or to continue to build on something or to introduce something, it becomes really clear once you've actually spent time with learning the business and the people. I, I agree with you, I don't like the term culture. It's a bit like the term high performance. I mean, high performance is not high performance. It is basically what a lot of businesses will put in place labeling a, a leadership program or a development program, but really, High performance and culture, all of those things come down to how how well can a business invest in their people to be able to have the right conversations, yep. to behave in the right way, to have their own unique identity and brand DNA where there is a particular focus. I mean, you look at human interaction, we are complex creatures. Yep. I can't sit there and tell you there's five values you must live by. Yeah, yeah. These are five values that will guide our decisions, that will be our um, benchmark for the way that we will resolve issues, that will be the standard for how we have a conversation, but outside of that, you are you. Yeah. And if we're not embracing a lot of that, then we're not doing the right thing, because I can't mould you into this robot, Yes. even though the world's trying to do that with everything. Yes. Um, hospitality is one of those beautiful things that won't ever be that. Yep. It will rely on human interaction. Yep. And what are we seeing at the moment? We're seeing less socialised skills. People are unable to hold a conversation properly. Yeah. They're too focused on technology. And my kids are the same. You know, like I'm petrified about how they're going to be able to have hold a conversation for five minutes when they get older because they're they're on their iPads. Constantly. Right. Okay. You know, and that's just the nature of their world. They'd rather communicate through an app than they would face to face. Face to face. Yeah. Hospitality demands face to face interaction. No, definitely. Yeah. But. The, the way that you can do that is by embracing people's creativity, the way that they engage others uniquely. Giving them some um, barriers is really important, but once you start trying to manufacture or manipulate too much of the interaction, then you start to lose its authenticity and you start to lose people's creativity. And that's when you start to kill your culture, really. So, you know, there's no script for how I talk to people. Yeah. There are things that we'd like to include in the conversation. Sure. But I'm not going to tell you when to have that. Yeah. And I think that's the importance of hospitality when you talk about service profile skills and you talk about leadership. It's understanding what the outcome needs to be. Understanding what you want that feeling to look like to that guest or that customer. Why do they shop with us? Why do they go and look at coming to us on a daily basis? Once you understand that need and the outcome that they're trying to achieve from a feeling point of view, then you can set up a process or a guide of how to go and maximise that. Sure. And then you find the right people who can actually go and deliver that. Yeah. And that for me is looking at the outcome first and working back from there yes. and understanding what a culture actually should be. And I think that, you know, again, we, we're too quick to go and put five values on a piece of paper and say this will work. Put it on a poster in the back. Yeah. yeah. We've done our job. Yeah, most definitely. You know? Most and definitely. Unfortunately, we've, we've played to that lowest common denominator type for a lot of things in business. Yeah. But it doesn't have to be that way. The, the better operators now, especially in HOSPO, are the unique um, independent or single operator um, venues because they've got a lot of autonomy. They can do a lot of cool stuff very yes. differently. Yeah. They're not they're not guided by or trapped by this rigid sort of approach because yeah. when you're in a big business, you've got to make sure that everything's consistent. You've got to make sure what service I'm getting in Queensland is the same I'm getting in WA. Most definitely. 
The only way to do that is to put a lot of rules yep. around that. Yes. Yeah. And then you start sucking out all of the uh, that creativity. Yeah. So it's, it's a fine balance. It's a hard balance, right? Yeah, yeah. It's it's, it's what a lot of brands I think, struggle with, and I think especially uh, I think Melbourne and Sydney, but definitely Melbourne is is a place for independent brands. It has been for three or four years at least. Now. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they want to scale. Yeah. You can feel it. Yeah. Probably eighty percent want to scale is ego or money or yeah. both. Yeah. It's it's. Do you think it, if they do want to scale but not lose the essence of what they started, mm. do you think they can do that just by purely understanding their culture and building the frameworks around that? Or do you think they have to be sort of like, you know what, we're going to lose 10% of our culture and our brand because we are scaling? Yeah, and that's a great question because having a, a single venue is a different skill set to operating a multi-venue yeah, business. most definitely. You actually have to be a lot more uh, assertive, aggressive, yeah. um, otherwise you won't make it, yeah. right? So yeah. it's a lot of investment, it's a lot of um, days and nights of paranoia or stress of, you know, crisis management. Y- your skill set has to be very different to operate and grow yeah. beyond one, one venue. That's definitely. And I think a lot of people mis- misunderstand their, their capability of being able to do that. Yeah. They might have a great offering, but it might only be suitable to one place. And so the way that I always look at it is that if you have a look at your products and you have a look at your um, service or your, your engagement, and all that can be scalable without changing the way that you typically operate. Yeah. Then it becomes around business stuff outside of that. And, sure. and you can help, have people come in and help you. But I think from a culture point of view, if you lose the core principles of how your team or how you operate, and you're willing to concede any of that, you shouldn't move to a second second um, venue. If, if there's things that are guess insignificant around that so it might be um, we've got to improve our efficiency so we can't spend as much time with our guests at yeah. the table as we'd yeah. like to yeah. that's okay as long as you can maximise the effectiveness of that engagement yeah. of that interaction yes. so instead of spending exactly. five minutes I can spend two minutes but it can be really high quality two minutes you can only do that well if you've got really strong principles and engagement from your team yeah. so if, you, if you're going to compromise any of that part then the risk we're taking is far too great. And the money, while it might seem attractive or you might believe you're going to make a lot more money, this is where a lot of hospital places fail. Yeah. And this is why a lot of them are closing. Yeah. And there's been... Side three. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And everyone has a problem site. Yes. You know? Yes. And it's either three or five yes. or seven if yes. you're lucky enough, but yes. you'll have your problem site. And you'll go, shit, why did I do this? We've made the wrong decision. Yeah, then everything goes backwards. Yeah. But there are some really good operators that stick through that, who are resilient enough, persevere, and come out far better for it. Yeah. But it is a lot of work. You've got to be prepared to to really go through the depths of you know the problems that anybody could experience. Yeah. And be confident that you can come out of that. It's a hard one, isn't it? Well, I think it's the worst it is for today is that there aren't going to be the large operators like there are today. No. Right? Because the market's too saturated. Yeah. There is too many independent players, there's yeah. too many big players, yeah. there's not enough places, and there is margins now that are so tight 
that people are either lucky to be making money yes. or they're losing money, yes. but they've got a big enough business to mask some of that offset it, you know. Yeah, somewhere where they're making money to offset it. That's right. There are very few businesses that have been so successful um, that can continually generate a good profit margin, yeah. which then gives them scope to invest in their people, which then makes the business far more relaxed and enjoyable yeah. and everybody's looks stressed in, opera, in hospitality now. They look like, yes. and it is because they're trying yeah. to save a dollar yeah. and they're trying to get things done just as much as they were but using half the people or yeah. half the time. Yeah. So you overwork people, you burn them out, they then go, I've had enough of this, yeah. they go somewhere else, yeah. being sold a dream, you know, yeah. this is going to be... Yeah. You're gonna have so much, yeah, so much more autonomy. Yes. All of a sudden, three months later, yes, you know, it comes crashing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how that feels, but no, I don't no, know no, how that no, feels. No. But yeah, yeah. But that's the that's the cycle. That's the the vicious cycle of hospitality at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, my last question to you is um, how should a, should independent operators actually have a trading pathway to start? Absolutely. How do you, how do they start? Well, they, they have to, um, again, it comes back to the business model. Yeah. They, they can either start by designing a really good induction. Okay. Right? So having a look at what um, systems, processes, behavior, all those things, the skills that they need for their staff to be able to, I guess, execute on every single day. Then they should have a look at their leadership capability and start looking at what are those um, skills or behaviours that they really need to ensure that are you know, top of top of the, the path. Yep. Um, and then having a look at how do they invest in coaching every day. So building a training plan where it says, here's how to be successful in this business, here's the skills, here's the behaviours, here's the systems, let's go through your capability, let's put a plan in place about how to improve, how to how to actually go and drive you to develop to the next level. Where I think hospitality businesses are hamstrung or face challenges is two things. They either don't have that in place, which means there's no system for consistent training or skills, and you need to have that regular investment in terms of people's skills. It could be, it could be refreshment, it could be learning new things, but people need to be engaged. And doing the same mundane stuff every day is not engaging, right? Um, or they get sucked into the, the vocational education training world where you know, they get promised they can make money out of this. Yeah. That, you know, this is going to be a revenue generator, or this yeah. will give our staff certificates three, four for you know their training. But they're not set up to take that on. Yeah. They typically find that that world is so overregulated. The skills are very much um, universal, they're off the shelf, so they don't really play into their unique learning qualities or their yeah. environment. Yeah. Yeah. And then it becomes this jaded sort of resented, resent, you know, it becomes a negative part of the business. And then instead of fixing it, they're like, oh, well, we'll just either stop it. Yes. Or we'll just let it keep going. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where development becomes a real issue. I've always looked at investment in training as, and you know that's my passion, is mm. training first and foremost is something that I'm the most passionate about. You, you have to invest in it. Yep. If I only invest in my own time, in my own development, I can't expect someone else to do it. That's the starting point. True. And then if I invest in you, I'm automatically giving you that opportunity to, to improve yourself. 
that automatically gives me a better chance of engagement with you about having mutual goals, sharing the way that we can go and improve our lives together and the business. Automatically, that is a pretty strong business case for investing into someone or, or trading. It becomes difficult when investment doesn't just become time and a little bit of money, it becomes a huge amount of money. And that's where this cookie cutter, sort of one size fits all approach becomes attractive because we can start getting money in, uh, you know, back reinvested if we go down the vet path. Yep. Now, you've seen me go through this process yes. three or four times and yes. it's a nightmare. Yes. And you're constantly trying to get trainers to do the right thing, to spend you know, time with our people, to sell the right messages, to keep that consistency, coach the right skills, yes. you know, mm-hmm. to understand how to actually get in the door to have a meeting to then yes. talk about talk about what my sauce been drinking there. Talk about um, what training is involved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep it simple. Mm-hmm. Don't overcommit. Yeah. Don't overinvest. Yeah. And have templates that you can just give to your managers to say, here's how it's going to make your life easier. Yeah. If you can't make someone's life easier, don't do it. Totally agree. Simple as that. Chris, what's the best way for people to find out about you and what you do? Um, that's pretty limited at the moment. <laughs> I, Best way through LinkedIn? Or? Yeah, I'm in LinkedIn. Yeah. Um, so Chris Ferrin Consulting is, is my business name. Yeah. Um, look, I, I'm happy to have conversations with anybody um, face-to-face or you know online. It doesn't matter. But I, I like to be able to work with people to help them understand some of their challenges, what they have. How can I assist? Maybe I can't, but um, I've always found that people would genuinely seek out others to have a good outcome but not just themselves, but yeah. for their for their business, for their world. And totally. I, I could never shut someone down saying, nah, don't have any time for that. Because yeah. I, yeah. I'm lucky in my career, I've had people invest a lot of time in me. Yep. Um, I don't do a lot of hospitality work anymore. Yep. That's not by design, it's a bit by circumstances. I'm playing in a different um, industry at the moment, which yep. I'm loving. And, yep. um, you know, I'll always have my heart and soul in hospo. Um, and more than likely, we'll start working again with hospital clients. But um, at the moment, it's, it's interesting having a perspective the last six months where I haven't been involved daily in it. Yes. Being able to reflect on some of the things that we did and some of the things that I didn't do sure. um, gives me uh, some wisdom that I wish I hadn't had during that time. But the truth of hospitality is that you are so in it, you, you can't, see, you can't yes. see anything. You're not clear. So, so if I can help people by providing some of that, um, you know, I guess, wisdom around, well, can I challenge them about thinking differently? Can yeah. they, yeah. can they p- potentially approach something in a different way? If that's all it's going to be, that'll be fine. Yeah. I'm keen to work with, you know, a lot of different clients who genuinely believe that this is something that they want to go on and commit to. Yeah. Because if I say that they're not genuine about it, then. They're wasting my time, I'm wasting their time. Sure. Um, yeah. yeah. Chris, thanks so much. No, thank you. Appreciate yeah. it. Thank you, mate. Cheers. Thanks so much for tuning into another great episode of the Open Pantry podcast i hope you really enjoyed that so many great nuggets there from chris uh he gave such great detail and i really appreciate his time now as chris was saying if you want to get in contact with him probably the best way is on linkedin if you want to know how to spell his last name properly because it is a bit of a challenge even for me to say is f-i-r-i-n-a-u 
S-K-A-S. So that's the best way to contact him on LinkedIn. Uh, I think you'd find it really, really valuable. Otherwise, contact me as always and, and let me know and I'll hook you up. I hope you have a great day and speak to you again soon.